The flight deck is made possible by the generous donors supporting the Museum of Flight. You can support this podcast and the Museum of Flight's other initiatives across the United States and the world by visiting museumofflight.org slash podcast. Hello and welcome to the Flight Deck, the podcast of the Museum of Flight in Seattle, Washington. I'm your host, Sean Mobley. Most of our episodes focus on aviation and space history, but from time to time we have a conversation with someone making history right now. And that's the case with Brene Hadnot, a science writer and founder of Space Out STEM. With a career that has ranged from hard space science to historical writing, Brene is a rising star in the aerospace and science fields, and fortunately for the Museum of Flight, she's also a mentor for the Michael P. Anderson program, a free education opportunity for students from underserved communities named in honor of Michael P. Anderson, an African-American astronaut who was killed in the Space Shuttle Columbia disaster. In our conversation, Brene and I talked about her journey to study the stars through the maze of academia, the science fiction that inspires her, and the importance of community and resilience in the face of adversity. When you look up into the sky as a kid, what is it that you saw? I didn't see much. I'm from Chicago or from the south suburbs of Chicago, so I didn't see any stars. But I got to go to the Adler Planetarium Ooh. and they would have these big shows and you could like go inside like this dome and see all of these you know, beautiful constellations with like a deep booming voice describing <laughs> what they are. And I thought that was the coolest thing ever. I actually originally wanted to be a paleontologist. I'm a 90s kid, so like Jurassic Park was coming out, and I was obsessed with being a paleontologist. There was this paleontology exhibit at the Children's Museum at Navy Pier in Chicago, and I got to meet Paul Serino, who's one of the people who discovered Sue. Oh. Um, the, the big, like, pretty complete T-Rex uh, skeleton. And he was really sweet and you know, like six or seven. And he was just like, oh yeah, you should come to University of Chicago someday if you love dinosaurs so much. And that put me on this track of like, I'm going to study crazy hard and I'm going to go to University of Chicago and I'm going to study dinosaurs. And that is not at all what ended up happening, but it that definitely got me on the track for thinking about like academic science and thinking about going to like a, a more prestigious school than maybe I ever would have thought of applying to without some encouragement. So how did you go from dinosaurs, which are deep in the ground, to astrophysics and astronomy and, and all the stuff that you do now with space? Yeah, my academic career has been a complete random walk. So yeah, I went from like paleontology to astrobiology, you know, like an elementary school. And then I took like AP human geography in high school and I was like, I'm going to be an anthropologist. And then I took art later in high school and I was like, I'm going to be an artist. So I actually entered, um, I did get into University of Chicago, but I didn't go. I went to Washington University in St. Louis instead, um, a little further from home. I didn't want to live with my parents during undergrad. 
Um, <laughs> and, you know, ended up going there, really loved it. And um, I was going there for a bachelor's of fine arts um, to be an illustrator. And um, I got into this program called Pathfinders, which was for people who were interested in environmental justice um, and social justice, um, specifically around environmental topics. And because of that, I had to take some science classes. So I took, you know, this earth and the environment class, kind of realized that my dream of being a paleontologist died in that class. Because <laughs> I was like, ah, studying rocks isn't as interesting as I thought it would be. And I also don't like having to be outside studying rocks <laughs> all day. I love hiking. I just don't love hiking and having to like dig dig and record and find <laughs> things. Oh my God, it was so boring. Um, I feel so bad saying that. Um, hey, you know, other, somebody thinks looking at stars is boring, I'm sure. So. I'm sure they it's do. Okay. I'm sure they do. But then um, in my sophomore year, I took this remote sensing class uh, with Ray Arvidson. He was the director of Pathfinders and also the deputy PI on the Mars Exploration Rovers. So he would open up every class with an image, like a recent image from Spirited Opportunity, you know, on Mars. And I'd never seen an image of Mars from Mars before. It blew my mind that we actually had like rovers with cameras taking pictures of the Martian surface and then sending it back to Earth in real time. So yeah, I switched my major from, you know, art and, and printmaking and illustrating to planetary science, caught up on all the math and intro science classes that you're supposed to take, like general chemistry and physics and all those things. And then wrote a thesis on Martian analog rocks um, and got to go to like Caltech for a summer and work on some research there for the, for the new Mars rover for Curiosity. Um, and I, I just fell in love with planetary science. I was like, I'm a Martian. I'm going to study Mars. This is all I want to do for the rest of my life. Yeah, so that was cool. So Mars rocks were more interesting than Earth rocks. Mars rocks were more interesting than Earth rocks, yes. It, because I didn't have to do any field geology. <laughs> I could do everything <laughs> on a computer. <laughs> hey, that's fair. In the air conditioning. Exactly. Exactly. I, I remember my own first encounter with Mars images. Uh, I remember it was at my grandmother's house and it was a National Geographic issue. I don't remember exactly what year it was, but it was, I want to say maybe late 90s, early aughts. And it was the issue where they included 3D glasses Whoa. back, you know, before the 3D film boom of the mid to late aughts. And it was like the, the green, you know, like the blue and red glasses. Yep, yep. Because they had, they had 3D images <laughs> in the National Geographic. And that was so mind-blowing. Oh, that's I, so I that awesome. Too. I think a lot of people remember their first encounter with when they realize that they're only a small part in this very big thing. Exactly. Exactly. I think what, yeah, what struck me, you know, so much, like, especially seeing the sun or a sunset on Mars, I was like, look at how different the sun looks like from this other planet and the sky looks completely different. And I, I thought it was, it was the most beautiful thing in the entire, entire universe. That was great. Has your background in art, helped you along the way in in visualizing these these kind of abstract things in outer space i mean we see photos of it but we aren't there ourselves 
I I would definitely say so. Um, I think it, it, you know, I definitely felt like I was at a disadvantage, um, you know, compared to other students who were studying physics, astronomy, planetary science. They all, you know, came in and were like, oh, I took, you know, calculus when I was like 12 years old and I'm taking it for the first time at like 19. I love to draw. So in all my classes, I, I would draw everything out. I draw a lot of diagrams, a lot of graphs, a lot of charts. Um, and I definitely think that that really helped me kind of understand and visualize what was going on. I hope uh, if any younger students are listening, they, they pay attention to what Brene said about changing majors. And, and I actually, in my whole college career, I can only think of like two or three people who I knew through all of college who graduated with the major that they had gone in expecting to get. Right. It's totally okay to find something new uh, along the way. I, I think it's hard to know when you're like 17 or 18 or 19 what you want to do for uh, the rest of your life. I definitely encourage people to explore, take random classes. I took Chinese civilization. Why? I, I have wow. no idea. Why not? Like, it was a yeah. fun and interesting class. Uh, I'm not a Chinese scholar, but. Um, I learned Chinese and I could talk to some of my colleagues who worked in planetary science and Chinese and that was cool. Yeah, you never know what skills you can pick up that'll be useful. Now, you moved into graduate programs uh, once you really started pushing in. What was it that you were studying in these programs? I started my doctorate degree at Cornell in 2014. I took a year off and I just worked as like a remote sensing analyst at the University of Vermont. And what exactly is that? Oh, yeah. So remote sensing analysts. So let's say um, I am NASA and I have built a satellite with a lot of lovely cameras and filters that can look at things in all sorts of different wavelengths. And instead of pointing that camera towards space, I point it back at Earth. Remote sensing just means observing something when you're not physically there. But this project was for analyzing vegetation in sub-Saharan Africa. And they needed someone to sort of look at uh, how the vegetation uh, flourished or did not flourish um, in response to this uh, government subsidy program that was giving uh, fertilizer to, to farmers. Um, so that was just kind of a year spent, you know, learning more about like the, the mathematics and like the physics behind, um, you know, some of the, the cameras um, on satellites and learning a lot more about coding, um, which was something that I did not really do in undergrad at all. Um, R was my first coding language because it's free. <laughs> Encourage people to use use free coding languages. Don't pay. With that experience, I felt like you know I was a lot more prepared for the rigors of graduate school, which was going to be a lot more math and physics and coding intensive, since that's kind of what planetary science and you know astronomy especially are trending towards, kind of the big data um, analysis. So I, I felt you know a lot more prepared for that going in. My first project at Cornell was using an instrument called a Fourier Transform Infrared Spectrometer, which is just a fancy word for a detector that looks at things not in the visible. So if you go to red and then you go a little bit further, now you're in the infrared. So it would shoot infrared light at all of these mineral samples that I had to, had to crush by hand, which I hated. That was... Super annoying. Our field work. Yeah, That's I know. Work. <laughs> uh, rocks come back. Can't escape them. <laughs> I really can't. I didn't want to do 
physical things <laughs> in the lab. Um, and yeah, was was analyzing um, the the OH bond lengths and you know all these different minerals because for astronomy, for telescopes or for a detector that you send to, let's say it could be Mars or maybe you're really cool and you send a detector to an asteroid or an icy moon or what have you, you get uh, these these wiggle wiggle lines that we call spectra. And those spectra range from a variety of different wavelengths from visible to, to infrared to beyond. And um, to interpret those, those wiggly lines, you need libraries of spectra that kind of tell you what they are. So this, this project was sort of building up a library of like, okay, like what would I expect to find um, on an asteroid? Maybe some hydrated salts, maybe some, you know, ammonium salts, maybe some sulfates, maybe, you know, this, that, or the other. And then analyzing those with the precise instruments and then saying, okay, so if I point a telescope or if I send a detector to Ceres, you know, when I find something, I won't be confused. I'll, I'll know what that thing is. So you, you point a telescope at an asteroid, get the infrared reading back, and then compare those waves, like you said, to the waves of iron or, or a sulfate on Earth. And you can compare that to what's and so you can kind of tell what's on that asteroid yep yeah exactly those those wiggly lines that we just we call spectra yeah <laughs> um yeah how did the academic science world react to you as <laughs> as a woman of color that is a great question um you know in undergrad i i was really anxious um i grew up going to a uh, majority black schools so I, I never felt like I was the odd person out. Being at WashU, Washington University in St. Louis was my first time uh, being in a predominantly white space. But I felt you know, so supported there. Everybody was really kind. My advisor at Caltech, Bethany Elman, who I worked with for a summer was super supportive. Was always like, ask me questions, like please come in and like, you know, ask whatever you want. Like, don't feel like, you know, you're not supposed to be here. And then when I got to Cornell, I had the exact opposite experience. People were saying like, oh, you know, I, I came to Cornell on a, on a fellowship. Um, I got a Coleman fellowship to go there. I was really excited because it meant I didn't have to TA, which I really <laughs> did not want to do. So I was like, thank God, you know, some fancy like institution is going to pay for you know me to go to grad school and someone told me oh you know you only got that fellowship because you're black I wish I could get a you know minority fellowship you really shouldn't be here and it was maybe one of the first times that I'd experienced like pretty blatant racism in an academic setting people touching my hair people asking me like if I grew up in the projects if I'd been shot because I you know mentioned that I'm from the Chicago area. Have you been shot? Yeah I was like I haven't been shot and if I had been I probably wouldn't talk about it. Yeah it was um it was it was really difficult to exist and then yeah like uh I think I would describe Cornell as a very anti-woman anti-person of color kind of a space. I, I did not feel safe or comfortable there and ended up having to go through this, you know, really long Title IX process after getting assaulted. And it was, it was just, it was terrible. Um, so I ended up leaving Cornell in 2017 
I'd done a summer internship at Trevor Repulsion Laboratory for something totally different. It was for Saturn's biggest moon, Titan. They needed someone to analyze more wiggly lines, more spectra of these, uh, <laughs> of these cryogenic liquids of cryogenic methane and ethane, which is just methane and ethane at like negative 200 degrees Celsius-ish. Um, because on Titan, it rains ethane and methane. Um, at those temperatures. So they were like, how, how could we, you know, understand what's going on on Titan if we were to send, you know, a probe or a lake lander there? And I, I really liked that experience. The folks at JPL were really great. So I kind of took that experience and turned it into this whole new application and then applied to Johns Hopkins and got into a different program, specifically studying uh, Titan, Titan chemistry. Do you mind if we go back and ask a question about your Cornell experience? No, not at all. What do you wish the person who told you that you're only there, you know, they wish they could get a scholarship and things like that? Or What do you wish they understood? I wish they understood how hard it was to get there and how much things like that were already on my mind. Um, I think that, you know, folks of color women of color, you feel like you're already not supposed to be there. You don't see many faces like yours. So there's this kind of persistent doubt that I definitely felt where I was like, oh no, like, you know, maybe I don't really belong here. Maybe I'm not good enough to be here. Maybe I'm not smart enough to be here. And then to have someone say that out loud to you, to basically voice your worst insecurities right back to you, just shatters, you know, your belief in yourself. And I, I wish this person had understood that, that their, their ignorance and their racism like hurt me really deeply. And to them, it was just like a, you know, like just a brushed off comment. Um, I, I really wish that a lot of folks in academia understood that better, that those, you know, statements, those, what they think of as like a casual statement can just completely damage, you know, your sense of self and your self-worth and suddenly you're, you know, why would you want to stay in a place where people are just questioning constantly why you're there, you know, why you exist? Um, I felt like I had to spend a lot of time like justifying my existence. And that was time that I could have spent doing science or thinking about my science or writing a paper instead of kind of combating these, these racist or sexist statements. I had one professor in this grad level remote sensing class, literally say to the entire class, women are less intelligent because they have less blood going to their brains because more has to go to their wombs to keep it warm. And I was just like, what? Thank you, 1823 medical I textbook? know, I, I was just <laughs> like, what are you talking about? But that like that, those statements, like, as a woman, you, how could you not be like, oh, what? Is that true? Am I really less intelligent? Like, what? what's happening? It's hard to just kind of, you know, fend them off. I'm sorry you had to deal with that. I'm sorry you had to go through that. Yeah, yeah, it's okay. Well, it's not okay, but <laughs> I know what you mean. It happened. You mentioned, you know, you didn't really see faces like yours. Why, why is that important? Why is it important for girls of color right now uh, to look up? to see you and, and other people like you and going back through history, the faces that have been erased 
from a lot of space history are, are being put back out there or not put back out there being, <laughs> being put out there. Why, why is it important? Why does it matter that we make a big deal about these things? I've, I definitely felt like from all angles, from, from white people, you know, in academia, I was being told, you're not supposed to be here. You're not good enough to be here. There's no one else here like you. And there was really no one I could point at and say, well, they could do it. So I can do it. It, it felt like every, you know, every step of progress I made, oh, you did really well on the qualifying exam. Well, how do you know they just didn't feel bad for you because you were a black person? I, I couldn't point to another black woman in the astronomy department. There wasn't one. I was the only one and say, well, no, like she did well too. So now we have two data points, you know, that say like, hey, it's not our race that people are, you know, using to, to justify our existence here. It's because we're actually talented. Um, and I definitely think it, it puts it puts you at ease when you see another face like yours around. There are certain things that um, I just couldn't talk to my white male colleagues about. I couldn't talk to them about um, how scared I felt when someone tried to like corner me in my office and like get me to go to their house. I couldn't talk to them about, you know, how frustrated I was when people would touch my hair or throw things at my hair. They just didn't get it. Um, I feel like having that solidarity and that community is so important. And I think the, the community piece is even more important to me, you know, as a woman of color than maybe it is to, to another white person. I think community has always been what gets me through things. It's what I had at WashU. I had a community of other folks folks of color, folks not of color, but just other people who were like, hey, Brene, like, let's do homework together. Or, hey, like, let's look at this chapter together and like, see what it says. Um, and suddenly not having that and not having anyone that I could even like, have a parasocial relationship with and say like, well, that black <laughs> professor, like her and I, in my mind, are totally best friends. And like, she supports me. <laughs> um, you know, it just, it kind of felt like, it kind of felt like being in a space where everybody was was kind of against you. You, you mentioned community, and that was my next question. Uh, I was just curious what role. Obviously, you've done a lot of work, your work, uh, but nobody stands alone. What what role has community played in your science academic journey? It's been so important. I I honestly have to say I don't think I would have ever gotten into planetary society into planetary science if it hadn't been for the, the Pathfinder community, if it hadn't been for Ray Arvidsson at WashU, Brad Jolliffe at WashU, uh, Bethany Elman at Caltech, you know, the folks at JPL, Morgan Cable, Rob Hodis, Mike Velasca, like all of those people. I, ironically, now that I'm not in um, astronomy or planetary science anymore, I'm a co-organizer for Black and Astro. Um, so I, I have a, a whole other community of black women and black men who are interested in astronomy and physics and we chat all the time and whenever someone comes up and says oh my professor asked me again why are you studying physics you're not very good at it you should just leave we rally and we're like you're great you're smart you deserve to be here i think that's so important yeah i i never would have gone into planetary science if it hadn't been for people encouraging me and saying like Hey, you're good at this and you should stay. Now, once you finished your, your graduate work, you got into this world <laughs> doing more work with squiggles. Yes, yes. <laughs> more squiggles. So yeah, yeah. Left Cordell, went to Hopkins. That was cool working with like 
cold gases and like zapping them with plasma and then the gases turn purple because <laughs> they fluoresce awesome. it was so cool it was called the phaser lab and that was great i mean if it's called the phaser lab <laughs> how can you go wrong it was really cool the the lab manager there chow hey was like one of the nicest people i've ever met super smart and really talented at chemistry um it's where i met ashley walker she was a undergrad summer student who founded Black and Astro, another, she's from Chicago too, so like we really bonded. But, but once again, unfortunately, while Hopkins was a way better experience than Cornell, I, I definitely have to admit I did not feel, you know, welcome in the department. I, I felt frustrated that white students would get more support from their advisors than, you know, me and a, another Black student share and would kind of commiserate over this lot we shared in office space and we just we were kind of frustrated at feeling like we were you know second class citizens in our our own department so you know after my experience at Cordell which was really harrowing and after this kind of you know disappointing experience at Hopkins I was just like I'm done with academia for now so I <laughs> graduated with my master's in 2019 five-year master's so a figure and uh, spent like a few months working at a climbing gym because I love to rock climb. And then I ran more rocks, more rocks. I know, but <laughs> fake rocks, <laughs> fake rocks are cool. <laughs> you can climb them and no one asks, <laughs> asks you to analyze them. <laughs> I was just putting out, you know, applications to different remote sensing companies and got this callback from a company called Black Sky here in Seattle. They're a geospatial analytics startup and they needed someone to, to write code in Python uh, to analyze their images. And I, I taught myself Python in grad school. Again, free, free software. I had an advisor at Cordell who wanted to use MATLAB and I was like, I refuse. I'm not paying for it. I'm using Python. Um, <laughs> and and yeah, uh, moved to Seattle from Baltimore, uh, packed up my stuff and put it in a little wooden U-Haul cube. And, and yeah, I worked at Black Sky for about a year. Day in and day out, it's coding, coding in Docker, coding for AWS like cloud services, coding in terminal. And uh, while coding is a great skill, coding and debugging every single day was making my hair turn gray. So <laughs> in my free time, I was taking these creative writing classes, especially once the pandemic hit and we were all kind of remote. So uh, yeah, like starting in March, 2020, I was like, my time is my own. I'm just gonna take a creative writing class on the side and you know, see what happens. And I, I loved it. I had to write a lot for grad school. You're always writing papers or proposals or grants for something. So writing was something I was familiar with. Through that creative writing class, kind of started reaching out to other people who were writers and science writers. I got in touch with someone named Graham Lau, who's at Blue Marble Space Institute. And he said, oh, have you heard of NPR SciCommerce? It's like, what's that? And I guess NPR, and everybody should know about this. NPR has a program called SciCommerce where they literally teach scientists how to write science. So I pitched a story about Black women's experiences in physics, you know, something that was close to home, close to my heart, had the pitch accepted, and 
worked on that and I, I, I loved it. I loved the process of science writing. I loved that I could, you know, go interview other black scientists and ask them about their experiences and what terrible things they went through as well. And all of that became an article that, you know, I, I felt really proud of. I've been pitched it to Physics Today and they accepted it. And I was, you know, the wheels were starting to turn. I was like, okay, well, you know, I'm not enjoying coding. Talk about a white male dominated workplace. Some of my other female colleagues had quit. So, you know, I, I was feeling kind of lonely and writing was a place where I, I felt very accepted again. So I, I left my job in October and decided to become a freelance science writer. Uh, that is what I am doing now. Yeah. Are, are you familiar with uh, N.K. Jemison? Yes. Oh, my God. I love N.K. Jemison. Yes. So spoilers for any listeners who have not read The Shattered Earth, which uh, you should. <gasps> oh, uh, but, so good. But you're talking about this just made me because I, I, I don't know if you know this, but she got the idea at a thing like that, at a at a program that NASA puts on to teach fiction writers about like space. I loved that book and the shtick. I mean, it, it is a spoiler, mm-hmm. so skip ahead. Yeah. <laughs> but the whole the whole thing of this story is that the moon of this world has basically been snatched away or blown away, and and it's throwing the planet out of whack. I mean, there's much more to it, and she got that idea just from a, a workshop, a lot like that. So like that, that kind of stuff, people don't realize just how important it is for scientists to be good writers. Mm-hmm. I talk about this with, with the high schoolers that I've worked with. They want to be engineers. And I'm like, take creative writing classes, mm-hmm. take English classes mm-hmm. through all of college because anyone can be an engineer. But if you can make techno babble sound like something that people can understand, then you are going to be the one who gets paid better. Exactly. And you're going to be the one running the company. And then vice versa, too. Like, there's so much richness in the world and the sky that you never know where inspiration can come from. So I think it's awesome that you're you're out there doing this this work. Yeah, I I love it. And then we can just geek out about N.K. Jemisin. Oh, my God. I would love to geek out about N.K. Jemisin. Um, I also read the Inheritance Trilogy. Um, it's on my list. Oh, I haven't gotten there yet. I, I won't spoil it. It's so good. Um, and the novella <laughs> after that, which gush 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 um uh the city we became and you know the anthology yep. for black future black futures month i am a really big fan of octavia butler i remember coming across her uh as a kid and i didn't i didn't know that she was a black woman i wish someone had told me i think tony morrison is like super underrated and although i wouldn't call her stuff like sci-fi or fantasy she's just like a mm-hmm. just an excellent writer and you know what there are, there are some like weird fantasy, maybe you could call it like magical realism elements to like her stories. There's a, a Nigerian writer called Nendi Okorofor, and she just wrote a new book. She does a lot of really cool Afrofuturism. Her upcoming book, Remote Control, I heard her give a talk about. Um, it sounds really cool. And let's see, Broken Places and Outer Spaces, which is the other book I want to read by her, Finding Creativity in the Unexpected. Um, I just think she's really cool. And she has young adult books, which is like, she's a she's a double threat. <laughs> oh, and she writes comics. She's also a triple threat. Never mind. She does. Oh, wow. She's, trifecta. Yeah. Yeah. She's great. Yeah. it's It's been a really cool space. There are a lot of 
a really talented black woman and woman of color in the, the science writing and science communication space, like um, William Tyler, who just defended her PhD today, go her for astronomy. I think she's maybe like 20 something black woman to ever get a, a PhD in astronomy and astrophysics. So now you're working on Space Out STEM. I approached this company here, also in Washington called STEM Core LLC. Um, she was looking for someone to subcontract with to write anti-racist curriculum um, for All Star Code, which is a, a nonprofit that teaches young black and brown men in New York how to code in HTML, CSS, and Java. And although I don't write in those languages, she kind of wanted more curriculum around the history of black business, entrepreneurship, black software devs, which I was more than happy to put together. And kind of through that, she, you know, was asking, hey, like, you know, do you have a business? Because um, that would make it really easy to pay you, you know, as a subcontractor. And I did not. So she was like, why don't you make one? So <laughs> I made one. It's called Space Out Stub. It's just me. I also use it for my freelance writing. But it's, it's really focused on anti-racist and decolonized, uh, like, science curriculum and science education uh, geared towards communities of color. The goal is to kind of communicate science in a way that um, you probably wouldn't get from a textbook, uh, which really focuses on the, the Western history of science and, uh, and tech. And I really wanted to focus on the, the, the Black, the Latinx, the Asian American, Indigenous history um, of science. So that's something that's still in the works um, as I find more people to contract with. But it's been fun to write about science in this very different curriculum format, which I am still learning about. Yeah. Can you, can you share what anti-racist means for, for those who might not be familiar with the term? Sure. Yeah. So anti-racist, um, I guess if you've ever read anything by Ibram X. Kendi means actively, it doesn't mean not racist, but it means you're actively against the concept of classifying or dividing people by their racial characteristics. Um, and so anti-racist curriculum would be something that instead of saying, ah, oh, well, the indigenous people were lazy, and that is why when European colonists came to America, they didn't see any uh, crops or anything they recognized as a civilization. You would maybe rewrite that heavily from the perspective of an indigenous person and say, you know, we can't classify or generalize things based on someone's race, but here's, you know, this indigenous person's perspective. They weren't lazy. You couldn't classify a group of people as that probably. Um, but you could say indigenous people like worked with the environment to uh, make the landscape more, more natural and attuned to the seasons. And that wasn't valued by European settlers or, or for this business curriculum instead of focusing on, um, large corporations or multinational corporations, you would focus more on like individual black or brown folks um, who, who started small businesses and, and things like that. In college, studied history and actually for one of my capstone projects on the history of education, did analysis of textbooks mm -hmm. and how they discussed the kind of the first contact between Columbus and indigenous people that he interacted with. And these were like textbooks from the 1800s and stuff like that. And <laughs> Ugh, talk about an eye-opening project and an analysis to do yeah it's it's subtle in the way like um 
I, I think sometimes that, <laughs> yeah, it's sometimes yeah, it's true. Sometimes it's subtle. I think what's what's subtle is the exclusion. Whereas I was like looking up like different businesses. I was like, I had no idea that like this person was like the world's first black billionaire. Like I learned a lot about Madam CJ Walker that I did not know. Um, and I didn't realize like how racialized her, her story was. A lot of people don't realize in aviation that a lot of parachutes were manufactured by black businesses yeah. back during World War II and that era. It's it's fascinating. I, I was like, oh, why didn't I learn this? This, this is so great. Um, yeah, I think of anti-racism as just being inclusive, just telling everybody's story from their perspective instead of this kind of top-down, only these people get mentioned in a positive light approach. And for listeners who'd like to learn a little bit more about that, we, we also did a podcast that touched on, well, it didn't touch on, it really focused on decolonization and, and these kind of topics. Uh, I'll put a link to it. It was one of the ones from last summer. I'll put a link to that in the show notes as well, if you want to hear a bit more from the museum perspective. So speaking of museums, you got involved with the Michael P. Anderson program, which is a program named in honor of uh, astronaut Michael P. Anderson, who was killed in the uh, space shuttle Columbia disaster. Can you talk a little bit about what you do for that program, what that program is? I'm not from this area, so I didn't know what the Museum of Flight was, but as I read about it in this program, I was really interested. Basically, once a month, I attend this very large Zoom call with about 100 children who are very curious um, and (laughs) (laughs) ask a lot of really, really great questions. And um, I just sort of engage, you know, with them and their questions, try to answer as many as I can. And then um, all of the mentors pair up and do something called a Flex Friday, where we sort of give a theme to our our Friday uh, night talk. And we sort of tell them about our story and that, that's been really, I haven't done mine yet, but the other ones that have happened have been really interesting and kind of fun. People forget the power of their own story. Yeah, it's easy too. I think it's a lot of the way, because of the way history is taught. Again, I study history in college. <laughs> I could, I'm on a soapbox. I think anytime, that's so cool. But, but it's always, it's taught as like the version you get in elementary school for sure. Um, but in high school, in a lot of ways is taught as this, very top down because you're trying to fit all of world history into like a year right so you never really hear about the people you usually just hear about the events and it's and even with things like the declaration of independence which is a, an important moment that gets a lot of time spent on it you don't really hear too much about the people mm-hmm. um and and so when we think of history we don't think of people we think of dates and we think of events um, and, and so I think people lose the, lose touch of the fact that they are history. And, and I see that I work with a lot of volunteers. I mean, that's what I primarily do at the museum who, who many of them worked in the aviation industry, aviation industry, many did not, but, and, and it's, I won't say it's disheartening, but it's always like, they don't think they are worthy of being recorded in a museum or it doesn't occur to them that maybe your your story is so important right your perspective <laughs> even yeah even if, yeah like it, it really is and yes like that photo album that you have could stand next to the b17 like not physically i don't think we would curate an exhibit where there's a photo album from a artist <laughs> next to b17 but like 
it's just so it's they don't think of their their stuff the the detritus of their life as being something that anyone would care about when the reality is that's when, when you when you get into academic history in college you really do start learning that it is pe- like the reason we know these things is because people read journals of people who were there and things like that so like that's the only way we know that stuff happened so and and if you don't contribute your voice then 200 years from now you're out of the conversation mm-hmm. you know it's it's hard I've recently been doing a lot of work with uh, LGBT aerospace history, and it's it's hard to do because you know you know people existed, uh, and statistically they definitely existed, but with the absence of empirical evidence, which is what's valued in a lot of historical discussions, you know I can't just say, well, because eight percent of the population, or you know between who you talk to, eight you know six to twelve percent, you know we know that this many people were in that that doesn't quite work uh and because their experiences weren't recorded or they were recorded but they were in coded language so that a censor wouldn't catch it or something like that then it becomes very difficult to untangle the story and and put them into the story where they should be Mm -hmm. um and and so it gets lost. Anyway, no, that's soapbox. I told you. No, I got soapbox. <laughs> I would love to hear more about the history of like LGBTQ folks in aerospace. It's so enriching, especially because we just end up telling a more complete story. Mm-hmm. You know, I've really tried personally to move away from the language of we're adding their story because we're not adding it. It's it's similar in language. Uh, to you know columbus discovering america he didn't really discover it we're not adding stories that didn't exist we are taking stories that existed mm-hmm. and into like not even integrating them we're just giving the more complete story yeah we're just <laughs> that's all we're doing yeah yeah we're, we're presenting information that was already there but was just erased or just excluded right or ignored yeah or, yeah. yeah i think we you and i talked about it a little bit earlier too about uh like the the women of color who were very involved in NASA, mm-hmm. who's who were there the whole time. Yep. It's not like we're discovering them. <laughs> People knew, uh, and so it's not that we're adding their story to the NASA history. It's that we're finally telling a more complete story of NASA history. Exactly. Yeah. I, I wish I'd known about uh, Catherine Johnson when I was a kid. About a a woman from Virginia. We're my mom's side of the family is from who worked at NASA, I would have like gone to her house <laughs> when I was visiting my grandparents and been like, hey. <laughs> I hope people found this interesting and illuminating and 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 I, I appreciate you bringing your perspective to this this podcast and, and to science as well. Uh, I'm glad you're doing the work you're doing. Oh, thanks so much. Yeah, and I'm, I'm excited to, to keep going and keep exploring. Who knows? Maybe I'll zig and zag in another direction and you know, I'll be back here as like a polar bear researcher or something. I don't know, something random. Oh, you you never know. Yeah. You never know. And if I've learned anything from you, it's that life goes in uh, squiggles. Yes. So. <laughs> <laughs> Take away. Life equals squiggles. Exactly. Thank you so much, Brene. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for tuning into this episode of The Flight Deck, the podcast of the Museum of Flight in Seattle, Washington. 
Special thanks to those who have been able to support the podcast financially as we continue to recover from the impacts of COVID-19 on our museum. You make this show possible. And for those interested in becoming a donor, as this episode releases on this day, Washington's Give Big campaign is happening May 4th and 5th, 2021. And the Museum of Flight has a $25,000 gift match for this campaign only, only these two days. So now is the chance to make your money double the impact on the museum. And if you do give, mention the podcast in your donation comments so that we know that you're a listener. Head to givebigwa.org, that's givebigwa.org, and search for the Museum of Flight. And while you're there, uh, see if there are other nonprofits that you care about who are participating. You know, the pandemic has hit us all very hard. So truly, every value donated means more than you can possibly know. If you can't give financially, go to Apple Podcasts and leave a review of The Flight Deck. It helps the mysterious internet algorithms which let new people discover the show. If you want to learn about the museum's Michael P. Anderson program, and other educational opportunities for students from all sorts of backgrounds, head to museumofflight.org education, or follow the link in our show notes at museumofflight.org podcast. We've got stuff for K through 12. You can even get college credit in some of our more advanced programs. I'm continually amazed by what our education department offers. Museumofflight.org slash education, again, is the website, or heck, you could even email me at podcast at museumofflight.org if you want some help finding a good program, and I'll point you in the right direction. I'll include a link to Brene's work in the show notes at museumofflight.org slash podcast, and in addition, Brene has sent on a, a long list of other people of color doing really cool work in the aviation science and astronomy world uh, with links to their work. So I'll put that list in the show notes. Also in the show notes, you'll find links to the various other episodes of the podcast that got mentioned in this one. If you like what you heard, as I mentioned earlier, you can rate and review the podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you downloaded us from. You can contact the show at podcast at museumoflight.org. Until next time, this is your host, Sean Mobley, saying to everyone out there on that good earth, we'll see you out there, folks. Bye.